I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Chris Anderson, I always thought of as kind of as an economist. He was a journalist at, at The Economist magazine, and, but he's a journalist, so he has this nose for news. And then he got to be editor at Wired and still doing economic stories, but as an editor, he didn't have to sniff out the news anymore. He got to decide what was news. And then he went the level deeper that all journalists really want. I don't want to just report the news. I want to make the news. That's what Chris Anderson's doing now. Please welcome him. Thank you, Stuart. This is a big deal for me. Um, I am a, uh, I, uh, I'm a huge Long Now fan, and uh, I uh, every. Uh, Every day in the car, I listen to the, the uh, SALT lectures uh, on, on the podcast, and I can tell you there is no faster way to get smart than Long Now lectures at 1.8x. <laughs> it's also very intimidating because the sort of idea density is just extraordinary in these. And um, uh, this is especially a big deal because, because Stuart and Kevin Kelly and Peter Schwartz, who I think it was kind of a triumphant, who are all here tonight, are my intellectual heroes and mentors. And... Um, I feel that I couldn't be here if it hadn't been for them and everything they've stood for. So thank you, Stuart, for everything you've built. So tonight I'm going to talk about um, three things. I'm going to talk about industrial revolutions and why they're a big deal. I'm going to talk about, inspired by the long now motif and, and mission, I'm going to talk about the long arc of history and how perhaps a thousand years of history, the direction of a thousand years of history, is about to reverse. And then I'm going to talk about the maker movement and why something that may seem trivial and hobbyish is potentially a bigger deal than even possibly the internet. Uh, let me start by just sort of talking about industrial revolutions. The subtitle of my, 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 my new book is uh, The New Industrial Revolution. I spent some time sort of relearning about industrial revolutions, and I was surprised by a couple things. First of all, um, the first industrial revolution which we think of as being, you know, largely the dark satanic mills and all that, actually began um, much earlier than I, than I had realized. It began in the same year as the um, American Revolution, 1776, with the um, first commercialization of the spinning jenny, which was essentially the simplest possible parallel processing machine for manufacturing. The spinning wheel dates back to medieval times, and you see it in fairy tales. And the spinning jenny is really just a parallel processing wheel. It's where, where you spin multiple threads at the same time. And it was originally powered by the foot, and this led to the cottage industry of the late 18, uh, late 18th century. Um, and then after the foot, it was powered by horses, and after horses, it was powered by wheels, water wheels, and after that, it was steam and then electricity. Um, but fundamentally, this was a game changer. This, this single thing, the spinning jenny, um, changed uh, the nature of production. It allowed people to make more clothes than they could wear, and so they become producers. Um, it, allowed, it allowed them to increasingly move off the land as the source of their, of their, of, of their, of their sustenance. And 
um, it emancipated uh, many women by allowing them to create small businesses um, in the home in these cottage industries. It built family-oriented businesses. Now, very quickly, these became feeders into much bigger factories, which were driven, again, by the quest for more motive force. Um, the foot power could only take you to maybe six, ten of these wheels. Horses could maybe take you to ten or twelve, but then you needed to go to a water wheel, which meant you needed to move to the rivers and to the creeks. And then you needed even more power, and you'd move to steam, and that, and that took you to the cities. And that created, the, it created modernity. Um, and when you, when, you, when you think about those early days of the Industrial Revolution, you know, initially what we think of is, is the sort of the worst of it, the, sm the belching smokestacks, the, you know, the, the crowded living accommodations, the dark factories. Um, but what fundamentally it did is it moved people off the land and concentrated them around cities, which is a, a big theme of Stuart's work. And when you concentrate people to the cities, when people move to the machines, rather than the other way around, as we'd done with the mechanization of farms. When people move to the machines, you end up with a density that you otherwise wouldn't have. And with that density comes the need for the infrastructure of modernity. Um, the sewage system, you know, running water, schools, transportation, better housing, etc. And one of the really fascinating things about, about this move is what it did to the human condition. We think of the, uh, the factory town as being less healthy than the farms, than the bucolic countryside that these people left. But re the reality is, is that although initially they were a little dark and overbuilt and, and, and not so nice, um, what, they quickly, what you quickly realized is that, is that you know, when you build the infrastructure of modernity and things like schools and healthcare systems and clean water systems, people suddenly got healthier. And you know those those country those cottage walls were damp, and the brick walls were not, and you didn't have access to schooling in the small village, and you started to as they built the infrastructure around the factories, and this is what it did, it doubled life expectancy, you know the concentration of humanity around the mo machines around the means of production ended up building something that was better for us at least better for our species in terms of of life expectancy, and, and this is what it did to the population of, of England and Wales in that time, and this is what it did to the world. Uh, this is a graph I got from Andy McAfee, um, and it, it's really kind of profound. This is sort of the long arc of, of human history. This goes back, you know, to, to 2000 BC, and, and basically when you measure it in terms of things like population and, you know, quality of life indices, nothing, nothing happened. Until, until the Industrial Revolution. So the Roman Empire, Muhammad, Jesus, Plato, Greeks, you know, the Egyptians, it's all kind of unmeasurable when you look at these sort of core, core measures of kind of a species success which is their ability to live longer and reproduce more. Now, arguing whether that is a good thing or not, is, 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 I'll leave for another lecture, but the point is, is it was a game changer. It, it actually kicked in slightly before the Industrial Revolution, largely due to the mechanization of, of agriculture. So you can call that a proto-Industrial Revolution on the farm. But it was really once we kind of started to amplify human potential, to replace muscle power with machine power, um, that we were able to move to the next level of, of progress and development as a species. And, you know, this is, you know, seen by those metrics, there's really nothing that changes the game, like replacing muscle 
muscle power with machine power, of letting us kind of move up the evolutionary ladder from our, you know, from our kind of, you know, uh, undifferentiated, you know, limbs to our highly differentiated brains. So that's, so that's kind of, that's the first industrial revolution. It was a, it was a, it was a machine revolution, and it was about allowing us to, to go from beasts of burden to beasts of brain. Um, the second industrial revolution, by the way, there's lots of argument about how many industrial revolutions they've been and whether the, you know, the assembly line counts as one and, you know, whether steam is different than, the, than, than water, etc. But I'm going to just kind of move quickly past that and say, kind of in the long arc of history, the next industrial revolution should be the digital one. But I'm not going to show, show a computer. I don't think it's about computers. Um, now, the computer, this is the 1940s or, you know, in the 50s, etc. But I don't think the computers was really what, the computer was really what made the, the digital revolution a big deal. Um, instead, I think what made it a big deal was the democratization of that. And I'm not, again, showing a personal computer, although I could, but it was fundamentally the, the, the giving of this means of production to everybody. It was the spread of computing to non-professionals, to regular people that changed the game because it unleashed, it didn't just replace brain power with machine power, but it allowed brains to work together. It unleashed these sort of spare cycles, this sort of you know, dark energy of cognitive, cognitive surplus, to use the phrase, that was just sitting out there waiting to be connected. And so what I've used here is an analogy. I'm going to come back to this as we move back into manufacturing. What I've used as an analogy is something that you probably have forgotten about as a big deal. This was the release of the first laser printer. This is the Apple Laser Writer from, I believe, 1986. I'm sure someone here will be able to correct me. I think it cost about $6,500 when it was released. But, but with it came came this thing called desktop publishing. And I realize that desktop publishing is not a mind blower anymore, but it was at the time, because it did, it did an amazing semantic trick, which is that it took an industrial act called publishing, which used to be done in a factory called a printing plant, and it just added the word desktop in front of it. We took a industrial act and we made it personal. Desktop publishing. And, and the, you know, the means, the mechanism of how this was done um, was kind of interesting at the time. It was, um, the laser printer was a high-resolution printer, but more to the point, um, it, it spoke a language called PostScript. And as a matter of fact, that first laser printer, um, which came out a year after the Macintosh, had more processing power than the Mac itself. Because, you know, parsing this, this, this language of, of industrial printing was so complex. Uh, but what's interesting about this language, PostScript, is that it was what we call scale-free. That same language drove the printer on your desktop and also the biggest industrial printing plants in the world. That you could prototype something on your desktop and then upload it, or I guess in those days put it on a floppy drive and carry it, you know, to a, printing, you know, a printer where it could be made in any volume. And now you had the ability to slightly harness professional tools personally. Um, now, again, it was expensive and it was a little hard to use, but, but the other element was the software. The desktop publishing software was available for everybody. And you didn't need, you know, 500 years of sort of printing technology dating back to Gutenberg, and these terms of arts and these skills now were just a point-and-click experience. And yes, we made a dog's breakfast of pages, mishing together fonts and horrible things, but we quickly learned. We learned about leading and, and kerning and wraparound and flow and all those terms of arts became something that was, became almost second nature. But that only allowed us to make a few. No one was going to compete with the New York Times with a laser printer. 
And then we democratized the other necessary step. Not the, not the tools of prototyping, but the tools of distribution, and that was the web. And the web allowed you, by transmitting digitally, to, to again, break through the barriers of scale. Now everybody could reach the world's population. It was the barrier to entry had fallen to zero. It was, again, a scale-agnostic uh, method, and it, had, it did not discriminate between the professionals and the amateurs, between the credentialed and the uncredentialed. It didn't discriminate between businesses and, 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 and regular people. It didn't discriminate between the good and the bad. It was an indiscriminate distribution system, and that liberated creativity, and that's where we find ourselves today. And, you know, I, I think, you know, we forget how magical the moment we live in. Everyone in this room has clicked a button said, that says published and potentially reached eight billion people. And the fact that, you know, something that used to be a factory, something that used to require professionals, you know, unionized typesetters to do is now a button in your browser is kind of magic. And, and every, you know, I, I forget to, to kind of, you know, like marvel when I push that button, um, but yet we should. It is kind of an extraordinary thing that we've taken, you know, what Marx would have described as the means of production and basically made it something that is available to everybody and that we all have the same power. Now, you know, whether your words are going to be read or picked up or go viral is another matter, but the fact is we all have the same means of production. So that was, so that's the power of democratization. That's why I think that it's not about the technology, but more about who's using it. And the power of the digital revolution is that it let everybody use it. It was as agnostic as to, as, to, as to the credentials required to use it, and you didn't need any. And so fundamentally, it opened up a huge pool of talent and, and energy and ideas and context, and I need, don't need to say anything more about it. It created the web. So that's what, this, that's what the second Industrial Revolution did. Now the third. So the third is the, is the combination of the first two. It's manufacturing and digital. It's digital manufacturing. Um, and once again, I'm not, you know, this is not super new. Um, factories have been digital for decades. Um, and that's not the breakthrough. That's great, and it's been highly, you know, it's been good for productivity, and we, you know, we have our iPhones to thank for that. But just as it took, you know, say, say 30, 40 years for the mainframe to turn into the person computer, we've waited that long for digital manufacturing to become personal. For digital manufacturing to become democratized, and so the full potential of the digital element can, it can now be realized. So, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, so the fact that the factories are automated is not a big deal. Um, it has been true for a long time. And I, I, I think, you know, uh, let me quick, quick show of hands. Um, how many people here got to visit the Numi factory down in Fremont? The old, so Kevin, I know you did. You had a fantastic tour of it. So a small number of you did. This was the, this was the gold standard of 20th century manufacturing technology. So I'm sorry, that's the best picture I could get. But it was a collaboration between Toyota and GM to basically take the Japanese lean manufacturing methods, bring in the state of the art of sort of 1990s, um, you know, automation and create a factory of the future. Um, 
there's a, there's a really good, by the way, I think uh, This American Life, or, or um, I think it's an NPR This American Life that was sort of talked about what went wrong. Um, but suffice to say, it, it closed down. And um, it turned out that, uh, that um, it just, just wasn't uh, flexible enough. It made, made, you know, made one kind of car, or actually it was three kinds of cars, quite efficiently. But in the end, the, the marketplace demands uh, uh, wanted more flexibility. And, and uh, I recommend the uh, NPR uh, history to hear more about it. But the point is simply that that was, that was, that was 10, that was 12 years ago. And then Tesla bought that factory, or basically got the rights to that factory for a song, and put in place another car factory. This is just 10 years later, but this is what the Tesla factory looks like. And um, if you get a chance to visit the Tesla factory right now in, 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 in Fremont, you should, because you know, not for nothing did, was Iron Man based on, on Elon Musk and you know, his factories. This thing is unbelievable. But what's, what you're seeing there looks superficially the same. You're once again seeing machines making cars. But the difference is that the, the Numi machines were custom. Each machine did one job. And they were, they, were, uh, they were extremely hard to program and very inflexible. And you know, once you kind of got the whole factory up running and doing one thing, you kind of didn't want to change it. You just churned it out one, one after another. And every machine was different. The welding machines were different from the painting machines, which were different from the stamping machines, which were different from the sewing machines and the testing machines and, and, and the wheel applying machines, etc. What you're seeing here is that all the machines are the same. These are KUKA robotic arms from Germany, um, state-of-the-art robotic machines. But, but the point is, is that they're general-purpose robots. Every car can be different. And today, they're making cars. They could be making washing machines on the same line. These, these robot arms have this, these racks of different tool heads. And they can change their function simply by going and grabbing a different tool. So they can be a welding robot, or a bolting robot, or a door-closing robot, or a wheel-applying robot. And there's hardly a person to be seen on the floor. And that's and, and it, what looks like a subtle difference, special, single-purpose, specialized robots versus general-purpose robots, is actually transformative. Because fundamentally, what this allows is flexibility. And flexibility, I'm going to argue, is, is, this, is, the, is the, key, the key winning factor of the 21st century. Because flexibility allows you to move faster, it allows you to operate in smaller batches, and it allows you to personalize. Every Tesla can be different. If you go to a BMW factory or Mercedes factory, any high-end car factory, they're all the same. They're all using these flexible manufacturing systems. So this is what digital manufacturing looks like on the industrial scale. And that's why, and that's why this, this era of automation is different from the last ones, from the last one. But I'm going to go further than that. I want to show you a video, um, if I can just tab over here. And um, I want to show you a video of a, of, of a robot at, at work. So let me see if I can get this working. Um, This is not sped up. That is in real time. And it's doing like a little like that little sort of a trick they do in the streets of uh, New York where they hide the bean under. The, um, and I just wanted you to, to kind of watch that and, and think a little bit about the human role in the human place in the world.
It's kind of mesmerizing. So that's what robots can do today. They're really fast, and they're really accurate, and they're increasingly cheap. Uh, the uh, um, Rethink Robotics at Rodney Brooks' uh, um, new company has a Baxter, um, which I'm not actually showing here, I probably should have. Uh, the Baxter robot costs $22,000. Um, what's brilliant about it is that it's, it's a torso with arms and a head. It's kind of human-sized. It comes on this little sort of wheeled wheeled platform, and you kind of imagine this, the, usage, the use case. What's great about this robot, the, the, the Baxter, is that you don't program it. You, you reach behind it and you teach it, like you would with a child. And, and the scenario I have in mind, and this is probably not what Rodney has in mind, is that, is that you, you, you go to your, to your, whatever your factory is, or your bakery, let's say, and you're putting cupcakes in a box. You have an employee who puts cupcakes in a box, and you sort of think, a robot could do that. And so what you do is you buy a Baxter for $22,000, which is like, you know, less than an annual salary, and you, and you wheel it in, and, you, and you, tap, you, 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 you tap the guy on the shoulder, and he learns, turns up, and you ask him to move his chair over, and then you wheel Baxter in, and then you tell him that he's got, uh, you know, one more hour of employment, and that his job over the next hour is to stand behind and show the robot how to do his job. And then he collects your... Your, your severance, if you're lucky, on the way out. And it's a little scary, but, you know, this is, this is kind of what's becoming possible. So, so, you know, what does this mean for the future of work? And what I'd like to argue is that, is that this, is in, this is going to reverse the era of globalization. And what I mean by that is that, you know, globalization, and by that I mean sort of, you know, the quest for cheaper labor. And this goes all the way back. This predates the Industrial Revolution. The quest for, la for cheaper labor has moved us largely east, a little bit south, but largely east for certainly since, since, since the 1600s, 1700s. Um, the original, you know, spice, you know, the, the, uh, the, 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 the spice lanes, and that was a quest for resources. But then very quickly, once we began to manufacture things and move them around the world efficiently, we went for cheaper labor. And that took us largely to, to China, to India, other places like that. Um, but when you see these robots, what you realize is that... Is that is that labor is increasingly automated. China's adding robots as fast as we are, and we all buy robots for the same price. And so what that means is that labor arbitrage no longer drives trade. The, the labor cost of products is, shrink, is a tiny fraction and shrinking every day, and as robots do the work, you don't see geographic differentiation. Labor or arbitrage was a geographic quest for cheaper people, and now as you remove people, from the equation, what's going to drive the arrow of globalization? What's going to decide where things are made? And I'm going to argue that, um, that it's time. I think we're going to make things where we can make them fastest. Um, Stuart mentioned I just quit my job. Um, in December, I quit my job as the editor of Wired, where I'd been for nearly 12 years, and, and took over um, as CEO of my, of my robot company. You can sort of see where this is going. Um, and. Uh, <laughs> We, we, make, we, make, uh, we make drones, which I hasten to add, do not replace very many humans. Uh, they largely do jobs that aren't being done at all, um, which is putting cameras in the air, and we'll save that for the question period. Um, but um, but I, um, um, I, we're based in San Diego, and we have a big factory in Mexico. And, um, I, but I live in Berkeley, and I decided to, to open an office in Berkeley. And um, 
And this is where I opened it. I opened it at a furniture factory uh, called Swerve on 7th Street. Um, and I opened it just because I happened to know this guy and he seemed kind of interesting. And I ended up being co-located with a furniture company. And when you visualize a furniture company, you're probably thinking of wood and labor and all that kind of stuff. Well, you can't make that kind of furniture in Berkeley. Um, what, if you're making, and this, this furniture tends to be quite metal and relatively high tech, you know, lots of Silicon Valley companies get it. Um, but the way you make furniture in Berkeley is with this. This is a, um, a Fanuc um, arm, which loads a Morisiki CNC, a five-axis CNC um, in the back. Um, those, the machine in the back is, uh, CNC stands for Computer Numeric Control, and it's basically a milling machine. It's the, it's the machine that makes your iPhone. Um, actually, quite exactly the same thing, that, that, that Morisiki. Um, and typically, that machine, the way it works is that machine has a door and um, a block of metal. A worker takes a block of metal and puts it in the machine, then the door closes the machine and then makes the part, and the worker picks up the finished part and puts it in a bin. But that's too much labor. And so now they have a Fanuc arm that loads the blank and picks up the finished part. And it works all night, all day. It's called, they, they call it lights out manufacturing. Um, because there's no need to have the lights on, the machines don't care. And the, and, the, and the only reason that the workers have to come in at all over the weekend is because the bin where the, uh, where the little metal filings come out of this fills up, and they haven't figured out how to get a bigger bin. And so they, all they have to do is come in and take a shovel and empty the bin of filings. Takes them, takes them 20 minutes, and then the machine goes on. And this is one of the most advanced manufacturing pods um, in the world, and it's in a and it's on 7th Street in Berkeley. And even more importantly, the designers of the furniture are 10 feet away. And so what you're looking at here is how you get fast, flexible, short supply chains. This is the way that you can link design and manufacturing. This is the way you can manufacture in market. This is the way you can make every furniture different. This is the way you can get the product to the customer two days after it was ordered. This is, this is fast. And this is flexible, and this is near, and this is, this is starting to look like a future of American manufacturing that makes sense. It doesn't create jobs the way the old manufacturing model did. It's not going to replace all the jobs we lost in the 70s and the 80s, but it does bring the parts, it does bring the manufacturing back to us. But more to the point, it brings a different kind of manufacturing back. This manufacturing is, is extremely efficient in that it's in that as well. Here, I've, uh, here, I've got my, forgive, forgive me, give me the, uh, the bullet points, but this is what's different about this kind of manufacturing. It's, you can change it every day. You can change the design by the day. You don't have to order huge batches of the same thing. That mass production model that's driven manufacturing for hundreds of years, it's all about one size fits all. It's all about finding out what the, you know, the lowest common denominator, the mass, the mass wants, because that's the units that that kind of, you know, if you're going to, you know, you're going to ramp up a factory and fill the containers and get, put them in the trucks and get them on the shelves of Walmart, that's a, like a year-long process that involves units of millions. And that's great for spoons and things like that. But what about everything else? We saw what the internet did to mass media. We saw what it did to one-size-fits-all. My first book, The Long Tail, was all about that. We recognized that once we liberated the ability for small batch and micro and niche, that suddenly we realized there was demand for things that were not. You know, the blockbusters and the prime time and the bestsellers. There was demands for things that defined us as individuals. 
that didn't just define us as a group. And now we can apply that same model to physical stuff because the means of production are now as flexible and as unique as our own taste. Um, let me give you an example. Um, so I, I, we, my company, we used to make a lot of stuff in China, and we learned that there's, there's basically four terrible things that happen. But uh, we used to live in China, and I'm a huge Sinophile, and I have massive respect for the Chinese manufacturing model, um, which I'll talk about in a minute. But as a customer of it, I realized that there were some intrinsic limitations. Um, the first is that it's really oriented around big batches. Like, like you know, we were making circuit boards. You kind of got to do... Basically, it doesn't get, don't get any kind of decent pricing or economics for less than 5,000. You really want to go up to 50,000, et cetera. What that means is that all of your cash goes into the supply chain. You basically have to write a check for like, you know, 50,000 of them before the factory spins up. Only then does it show up. You know, months later, it comes um, and you get it, and then you can get the product into the marketplace and get the money back. But all your cash goes into the supply chain ahead of time. The second is that it is, as I mentioned, slow. And um, uh, it was good to hear that we're on Chinese uh, New Year. Uh, Happy New Year, everybody. The tech industry is shut down for two weeks. You know, anybody who's in the hardware business right now is the Chinese New Year is the worst two weeks of the year because, because we're so dependent on Shenzhen and the Guangdong you know, production uh, you know, uh, world. And, every, and we know it's in the calendar. We know when Chinese New Year is, and every year we get it wrong. I mean, our own, our own orders went in. We thought four weeks before Chinese New Year was, was sufficient to get in before New Year. It turns out that everyone else was going in six weeks before. And it's, it's just, you know, every, every year we get two weeks to remind ourselves the costs of globalization. Um, the, third, the third problem is that um, if you made a mistake, if there's an error or a defect, you've just made a big batch mistake. And you've got, you've got now like you know, 50,000 of these things that you either have to throw away or rework. And so there's an entire industry of factories that will rework the mistakes of previous factories, which is, which is, which is tough. Uh, but the worst, and this is the most, the most corrosive, pernicious consequence of that kind of outsourcing, is that it is death to innovation. Because think about it. Let's say you just designed some widget, okay? And you now put it into the outsourcing thing, and because of the economies of scale, you've got to do 20,000 of these to get any kind of decent pricing. Um, and you wait months to show up, and now they've showed up. You need to sell them, and you need to get the money back. And you can't change the design until you've sold out. So basically, you're disincentivized to innovate until you've sold your first design. And so what this whole thing does is it basically sort of says, don't change a thing. Don't change a thing because you've got to sell the old thing. So big batch means slow innovation. And that's just not the way the world works today. And that's definitely not the way the web works. So you know, what we're talking about is shorter supply chains. I realize it's kind of wonky, but shorter supply chains are really cool. They're faster supply chains, they're more flexible supply chains, they're more sustainable supply chains. You're only making what you need, you're doing just in time. They, you're not shipping things 9,000 miles around the world, so they have lower carbon footprints. They're, short supply chains are a good thing. We've seen what short supply chains, chains mean for food. That's why we are, have the local war movement and artisanal. And, and you know, the reason we go to the farmer's market is because we like su short supply chains in our food. Um, we like short supply chains with our media. That's why we have the web. You know, it's, 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 one click across you know, to the server. And short supply chains are, are, are all equally good for manufacturing, just hard to do until, until recently, until we managed to make things digital and take the labor component increasingly out of it. So, so that takes me now to the maker movement. And um, I wanted to, the maker, this is Maker Fair. A quick show of hands. How many people here have been to a Maker Fair? Yes, 
great. <laughs> so you, I, I almost don't have to tell you anymore. It is, a, it is a fantastic experience. And every time I go and run the booth, I'm just kind of like, who knew? I mean, the, the, the garages of Silicon Valley open up and everybody's doing cool stuff and the kids are doing cool stuff and it's just inspiring. And it, it's great that it's physical stuff as well because, because, you know, turns out that was all happening behind those closed doors. We just didn't know it because we didn't work together. We didn't do it on the web. So I'm, I'm going I'm to tell a story, but while I'm, gonna, while I'm telling the story, I'm going I'm to ramp up this machine. This is, this is um, I just going to go back to here. Um, so um, at the first uh, Maker Faire, I, I saw my first 3D printer, and um, it was a, called a cupcake uh, from MakerBot. And um, uh, by the way, Neil Gershenfeld of, uh, um, from the MIT Fab Labs is here tonight. And uh, Neil, you want to put up your hand? Uh, Neil, is, uh, Neil is sort of the intellectual godfather of the whole concept of, of, of fabbing, of personal manufacturing, desktop manufacturing, and 3D printing, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so, so, you know, I read his book, um, you know, Fab, when it came out and was blown away, but I didn't have one until I went to MakerFair and I saw, I saw a MakerBot. So this is a MakerBot which came out of, out of the Maker, out of the kind of the open source hardware movement. It, um, uh, it was largely enabled by the fact that a patent expired. Um, and then there's things like Arduino, the open source computing platform. This is, um, I have the first MakerBot. I have like number 380, um, which is a cupcake. And those days it was a bag of parts and you put it together. And let's just say that I never actually got it working. Um, <laughs> But this is a second generation MakerBot called Thingamatic, which still has some sort of, you can still see some of its heritage. It's still laser cut and, you know, um, it, you know it's kind of screwed together. I actually did not put this together. Somebody much more competent than me did. Um, and this one actually does work. And, you know, to be honest, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a big chance here. And we're going to, I'm going to try to make, while we're sitting here, okay, we're gonna, I'm trying to make the classic 3D printing object, which is Darth Vader's head. Um, <laughs> So right now it's going through a calibration and heating process. Um, my children have, this is my children's uh, MakerBot and we'll talk a little bit more about it. But this is kind of, this is, this is sort of reminds me a lot of the whole Maker Faire experience, which is to say it is not as shiny and polished and professional as you know, the commercial products, but it's mine. And I'm gonna do something different with it. And I'm gonna think about the, pro the technology and find some use for it. So, while, so what this machine liberated me was a memory. And that memory was of my grandfather. Um, this is Fred Hauser. Fred Hauser was a Swiss immigrant to Los Angeles in the 1920s and 30s. Um, he was a kind of a very undistinguished uh, Swiss engineer. He actually never had a college degree. And um, he became something of, an, of, a, of a refugee. Um, you know, he could not, couldn't see a career for himself there. By the way, this is heating up. It's got to heat up its, its tool head and its build platform. And once it heats, it will, it will do its thing. Um, I, he came to the United States for opportunity, and so he went to Los Angeles to work in Hollywood, which was a mechanical business in those days. He worked for MGM, working on um, the, the, the talkies, the first loops for tape, for audio tape. And um, by day, he cranked gears in Hollywood, and by night, he, he invented stuff. And this is him at his, at his, at his work table, and he was, he, was, he was super happy there. This is he was kind of a, kind of a, a, a quiet guy. And, and, um, but he loved, he loved to take his ideas and make them uh, real. And he did it first on paper, um, and, then, and then he made a prototype. And what he invented, my grandfather, was the automatic sprinkler system. So if you have an automatic sprinkler system, I have my grandfather to thank. 
Uh, it's the it's the one you know it's 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 the little wheel that uh, with the little pegs that go in for the hours and it goes off when the hour comes and um, and this was the first one and, and and this is something that's on our wall in our house and this is this is something he had a very kind of mixed feelings about this is his patent uh, 1949 if I'm not mistaken this is the patent for the automatic sprinkler system and and this was something that he felt was basically the best thing about his life and in some ways the worst the best thing about it is that it it recognized that he in fact had invented this and he had the full authority. Of of the U.S. government that gave him this, this, this badge of, of recognition. What he hated about it is that, is that it was a pain in the ass. He had, uh, it was lawyers, it was expense, it was time, it was a completely unnecessary product, uh, process that he was forced to go through by the limitations of the 20th century manufacturing model, which is to say, if this ever wanted to see the light of day, he was gonna have to patent it so that he could license it so that a company with a factory could make it. And this is the way it came out. It was the Moody Rainmaster. It was, uh, it allowed you to go to the beach while your garden watered itself. By the way, when you think about this, if you imagine, you know, Los Angeles in the 1950s, for example, it is, it is, uh, they're greening the desert. Um, there's, there's, they finally got the water, they got the irrigation, everyone wants the green lawn, people would come home, and they'd, they'd already invented those kind of cool sprinklers that go like that, but you had to turn it on. And what would a Swiss engineer do when he saw that? A Swiss engineer would put a clock on it. <laughs> and that's exactly what an automatic sprinkler system is. So this, this liberated you now to, to, to get in more sun time. And this, this, picture, this picture sort of fills me with a little bit of shame. Um, and I'll tell you why. Um, I would spend my summers with Grandpa. And um, uh, one of the last summers I spent with him in the, in the late 70s, um, so this thing is now going to put a, do the raft underneath this, our Darth Vader head. Um, and so in the summers I would spend, I, 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 would, I would visit him, and one summer he took me to the factory that made the, the Rainmaster. And uh, we drove there, and it was clear they had no idea who he was. Eventually, somebody, somebody was found who knew who Mr. Hauser was, and they said, oh, Mr. Hauser had the patent that we licensed to produce the Rainmaster. And they, they gave him a tour, and it's clear he'd never seen it before. He had no idea what was going on. Um, you know, they explained it to him very carefully, and they're very polite. But I felt, I felt embarrassed. I felt ashamed of my grandfather, because he seemed lost in the modern world. He seemed to have lost touch with his invention. He seemed to have to have basically lost, lost some essence of this. It wasn't his product anymore, it was somebody else's product. They had productized it, they'd commercialized it, they'd changed it, they'd modified it as, it was, as one would. Um, they'd done all the normal things of taking invention and making it real, except for he didn't do any of them. And what I realized there was that he was an inventor, but he wasn't an entrepreneur. And at that point, I, I felt that that was not a path I wanted to follow. He'd, he, had, he had lost control of his invention, and in losing control of the invention, he had lost touch with the process of invention because it's more than just the idea. It's more than the prototype, it's everything else, and you weren't allowed to do that then. This is how I would spend my summers with him. This is me at about five or six, learning how to invent mechanical drawing with Grandpa. And this is me at 12, check out the uh, jeans jacket. Um, and and this, this was, a, this was a, a, a great moment. This was, I, I, I'm at 12, and this summer, Grandpa had said, when you come to Los Angeles this summer, we're going to make an engine. We're going to make a gas engine. And I was like, cool. He said, I've ordered a kit. 
So we got there and there's a box and I open it up and I know what kits look like. There's gonna be, you know, the tree with the parts and it's got numbers and the glue and the instructions and it's like, inside the box were four blocks of metal and a blueprint. And I was like, where's the engine? And he's like, it's in there, we're gonna get it out. And just like a sculptor cuts away the bits of this marble that aren't the figure, a skilled machinist like my father in his machine shop could carve away the bits of metal that weren't the piston or the cylinder, and out of that, from a blueprint and a block of metal, could come a beautifully machined engine. The reason I remember this particular moment is that um, I was doing the piston. He let me do the piston, and he, uh, he showed me how to use a micrometer to measure it. And um, about two minutes after this picture will t it was taken, he will discover that I did not, in fact, know how to use the micrometer, and that we just cut away too much. And we had to get another block of metal and start from scratch. And the lesson there was, for me, it's not enough to have an idea. If you want to become an inventor, if you want to make something, you need to be a machinist. You need these incredible skills. I mean, a, a metal lathe is a beautiful thing. In the hands of a skilled craftsman, and as the curlicues you know, pile up around your feet, and these polished devices come out of this machine, it's a marvel to watch. But I didn't have those skills. I would never have those skills. He was trained in that. I wasn't. So, so I forgot about that. This is a movie that was a reminder of why you should, you know, why we all forgot about that in the 20th century. This is called Flash of Genius. It came out a few years ago. It's about the invention of the intermittent windshield wiper. This is the one that pauses. It had a little timer circuit. And it's a very similar. This is the guy. This is the fictionized version. But there's the guy and his kids. And there's the prototype. And it, he's got the, got the commercial windshield wiper and then a little delay circuit. And he's invented something. And then he makes this, like, mistake. So he's just like my grandfather right up until then, but then he does something my grandfather didn't do, which is that he chooses, although he patents, he chooses not to license. Instead, he decides he's going to make it himself. And, so he, and what that meant was building a factory. And what that meant in those days was six years of agony. He, he mortgages his house. He start, you know, rents some space. He starts bringing in the forklifts and the production lines and hiring people on the production machinery. 1961, 1962, 1963, and my memory serves, it was 1964 in the movie when he is leaving the factory, still unfinished. He's in Detroit, it's raining. He walks out the door, dejected, turns the corner and sees the new 1965 Mustangs being driven to be unveiled for the first time and their windshield wipers pause. And he realizes his idea has been stolen. And the movie then tracks his descent into madness and it's very entertaining and in the end he sued for a bajillion dollars and was okay and he recovered from the, his madness and all that. But the lesson was clear. Don't dare, don't you dare be an an entrepreneur in manufacturing. Don't, you inventors don't dare to try to own the tools and the means of production because it's expensive and the big guys will kill you and you'll go insane. <laughs> and that was hard. And that was because it was really, really hard to make stuff back then. And the point is, and what I was reminded, and what I remembered, and what I kind of learned when I got my first my first MakerBot is that suddenly it's not that hard anymore. When I have an idea, I don't need to know how to machine plastic or whatever the right equivalent would be. 
I just push a button and out it comes. And okay, maybe plastic's not so impressive, but I can push another button on the web and it can come out via a service like Shapeways and my idea can be produced and prototyped in titanium or stainless steel or silver or at any resolution or color. And now suddenly that big barrier to entry in making physical stuff, which was the skills to prototype, has disappeared in the same way that the barrier to publishing, the ability to typeset, disappeared with PostScript and the laser printer. And that was a big deal then, and that's a big deal now. And so you will not be impressed by my green Darth Vader head, if, it, if in fact it does come out. But you will be impressed by the one after that, that's going to be in multiple colors, and the one after that that's going to be in multiple materials, and the one after that that's going to have the electric wiring embedded, and the one after that which is possibly indistinguishable from a manufactured good, and the one after that will be biological, and we can talk about that later. Um, but this, that was hard, and this is not. This is what a factory looks like today. This is a tech shop down in Menlo Park. Um, there's one in San Francisco just a few blocks from here. There's one in San Jose. They're spreading around the world. Uh, this is the gym for manufacturing. In the same way that you go to a gym and, you, and for $100 a month or whatever, you have access to machinery you wouldn't otherwise afford or want in your home. You have access to trainers and you have access to other people who are doing the same thing, which is inspiring. This is a gym for, man, for making stuff. This has the 3D printer and the CNC machine and the laser um, cutters and the CNC embroidery and the CNC quilters. If you've never seen a CNC quilter, it's an amazing thing. There's one just down the street on, on uh, 7th and Mission, uh, 7th and Howard. Um, and the software tool to use them, and also the traditional manufacturing of the metal lathes and all this kind of stuff, and the electronics tools, and the injection molding, and it's just stunning. I mean, I, I warn you, if you go into there, you'll be tempted to quit your job. As a matter of fact, I did. Um, so what's interesting about this is I just want to kind of point out a couple people because I like them in this picture. The guy here in the front here is making a, um, a wireless control module for the smart grid, the electric grid. And when he's done, when he's done with these, uh, this little, these, these small batch, he puts this label that says ABB on them. And that's because it's ABB, the Swedish engineering firm, and they're actually the ones who distribute and sell it. And when you buy it from ABB, you assume it's made in some massive Swedish factory, if that's possible. Um, but in fact, it's made by this guy at Tech Shop. Um, and if he needs to make more, he'll just outsource it to, you know, to the, the, the world's factories. Um, the guy back there is doing a vapor deposition chamber for synthetic diamonds. And uh, way in the back, with, under the American flag, they're doing a lunar lander because why not? Um, so that's, that's starting to look kind of interesting. The tools, these hard things are becoming easy. Um, this is a map of makerspaces uh, around the world, or hackerspaces they're sometimes known, and they're spreading all over the place because, again, it's getting easy. Easy is not to be underestimated. Um, easy is liberating. Easy taps the pool of talents and ideas out there that were turned off by hard. And what's, what's cool about this, especially the new versions of this, is that they're easy. And that's why they're powerful. So I showed you this picture. I showed you the analogy of democratizing the tools of creation, democratizing the tools of distribution. Now this is the manufacturing equivalent. This is what desktop manufacturing looks like. Yes, this is the new MakerBot that now basically is like a microwave oven. You just open the box and it just works. Um, and that's great. We now, are, we now can make one of something or two of something in, in sort of some rough you know, coarse resolution. Call it the, somewhere between the dot matrix printer and the laser printer of, 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 of manufacturing. That's not sufficient. That doesn't change the world. That is not an industrial revolution. It's not even a manufacturing technology. They call them rapid prototyping tools for a reason. They're prototyping tools. 
So how do we get to an industrial revolution? Remember PostScript. What PostScript had was fundamentally a language, a digital language that could drive the machine on your desktop and the biggest factories in the world. And now we have it. What's driving this machine right here is something called G-code. And G-code is the PostScript manufacturing. That G-code will drive a 3D printer, it'll drive a laser cutter, it'll drive a CNC machine, it'll drive all these digital manufacturing tools. And what's great about this is because it's digital, it, it is, it is um, unencumbered by geography. You can upload it to the internet and you can share it you wouldn't actually share G-code, you'd share a higher level language, but the point is, these are digital files. And digital files start to act like the web. And once they act like the web, they tap the innovation model, the social model. They tap everything that's been so magical over the last 20 years. Once, digital, once manufacturing becomes digital, it becomes social. That's the breakthrough. So on the right here is what you do with it. So I mentioned that the guy in tech shop was making a few of those, of those wireless control modules. But you know, that's, again, he's not competing with the biggest, the Honeywells of the world. How would you do so? And the answer is, is cloud manufacturing. What I'm showing here is a picture from a company called Alibaba. And um, I, I want to quickly sort of go through this. Um, uh, Alibaba is a, is a kind of, you know, a web interface to largely Chinese factories. And what you can do is you can upload a file to the factory and they'll make stuff for you. As I mentioned, I used to live in China, and I can tell you what it used to mean to get stuff made for you in China. You had to fly to Hong Kong. You would have to then get an introduction to factories, cross the border, the minder or your, your, your introducer and maybe translator would then take you to various factories. There'd be these really awkward conversations where they weren't quite sure who you were and what you wanted, but they'd give you a little tour, you'd drink some tea. If things went well, you would then go and have dinner. Um, at that point, because you're the guest of honor, you would have to eat the fish eyeballs. Um, then, you know, if that went well, you'd do, you'd do the ultimate hazing ritual, which is karaoke. Um, and if that went well, they would agree to do business with you, which required a letter of credit, some bank transfers, and, and that was the easy part. Then you would have to figure out what it is you're making, and this exchange of faxes and miscommunications and errors and mangled products, and months would go by. But after you were done with all of that, ultimately you could get the world's factories working for you. So my experience was um, w with Alibaba was a little different. Um, uh, with my kids, I, I made a little sort of robot blimp and kit, and it was kind of cool. And somebody and 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 we got uh, Maker um, Make uh, Make Magazine, uh, who has the Maker Fair, and and, um, uh, and had a store called the Maker Shed, and they agreed to buy some. And so uh, we I think we got them ten, which we made by hand. And then they said, um, "Terrific! Now we'd like five hundred." Turns out this is like this is like the sort of like the uh, whoops moment for all makers is that when they are become successful, and you realize that you cannot sell a kit affordably if you're buying the parts retail. You have to buy them wholesale. Duh. Um, so I said, well, I got I got I got these motors. I got these two motors right now. They cost seven dollars each. I'm trying to get the whole kit to be under ninety dollars. There's no way I can make this kit. I have to buy these motors wholesale. So I went on Alibaba, Alibaba to look for wholesale motors. And I found this place that did it, and I said, I'd like to buy some motors, please. And they're like, yeah, what kind would you like? I'm like, well, what do you got? And they're like, what would you like? And I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, please design your motor. And I'm like, I know nothing about motors. And they're like, that's okay, here's these check boxes. You know, what kind of shaft length and windings and what voltage and what kind of magnet types? And I was like, I check, they just coached me through it. They check, 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 check. They said, fine, how many would you like? And I said, um, I don't know, 500? And they're like, okay, you can have 500, but here's the pricing for 5,000. I was like, that's pretty good pricing. I'll take 5,000. 
and then they took PayPal. <laughs> and 14 days later, this box arrives, arrives at my doorstep. And, 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 and I open up this box, and in this box, um, this, I, I, I had chills. Um, there were 5,000 motors. And um, I was just talking to Xander, actually. He had a recent experience. My experience, um, uh, well, he, he also just got some motors made in China. His didn't end up quite as well. But um, <laughs> we'll talk about this in a second. Um, so so the, uh, I'd never actually... You know, I'd never actually seen industrial packing before, but there, there were all the, there was these little sort of foam divots, and they were all lined up, and there was these little, like they were, there was this like, slight film of oil over them because they'd just come off the CNC machines. These little sort of line of plastic, and there was just layer upon layer upon layer of thousands of motors. And I looked at this, and I realized that I'd gotten robots in China to work for me, and they took PayPal. <laughs> and I thought, holy crap! <laughs> I just harnessed the means of production. I'm not, I'm not a company. I didn't have a letter of credit. Uh, they didn't know who I was. They didn't care who I was. I didn't have to fly to Hong Kong. I didn't have to send faxes. I just clicked on the web for 20 minutes, and I didn't even know anything about motors, and they worked for me. And if I can do it, anybody can do it. And in that moment, I realized that the global supply chain had opened to the individual, that for a number of reasons involving uh, you know, web generation coming of age in China, um, digital manufacturing making it ultimately flexible, the reason they could make those motors for me is that they, because it was all made by robots, it was, everyone could be different, um, and the fact that they saw that there were better margins on low batch, on small batch manufacturing, and that serving individuals via the web was a better business than chasing thin margins in mass production, that suddenly the world's factories had gone on the web and now we had cloud, cloud manufacturing. And today there's sites like uh, MFG.com um, and others that, that, that do this, but this is kind of cool. We've, com we've, we've closed the loop. We now know how to make a few, and we know how to make many. You can print local on your desktop, and you can print global um, by, through the world's factories. And just in the same way that when you press publish in your browser, you're getting industrially-sized server farms and, at Google to work for you, you can now get industrial-sized manufacturing facilities to work for you with a click of a button. And we are very close to the day when manufacture is a button in your web browser. So this is, this is why this is a big deal. Because we've seen what happens when we democratize technologies. We've seen what happens when we put power in the hands of regular people. That's called the web. That's called the personal computer. It's a big deal. But it, manufacturing, things, making stuff is a bigger deal. And we now have the opportunity to take all those social models and innovation you know, mechanisms and architecture of participation and collaboration and community that has worked so well in digital space and now apply it to the physical space. And that's, that's why I quit my job. So, I told you my grandfather invented the sprinkler system. Um, and as I started exploring this, I said, what would grandpa do today? If grandfather, my grandfather was alive today, how, what would he do differently? How would you invent the sprinkler system today? Now, somewhat awkwardly, we don't really have much of a garden. And I actually didn't know anything about sprinkler systems. I had to go under the house and sort of look at it, just to kind of learn, well, this is a valve, and that's a solenoid. And, Anyway, um, but Grandpa did a sprinkler system, so a sprinkler system it must be. And rather than just think about it, I decided to do it. So I said, okay, we're going to invent a sprinkler system, the maker way. So I kind of Googled around and found there were a couple other people who were doing this, and this is it. 
This is it, open sprinkler. It's an Arduino, it's, um, it's connected to the web so that if it's gonna rain tomorrow, it knows that and it's not gonna sprinkle today. You can add all the sensors you want to it and, it's, um, and there's no subscription free fee and it only costs $70. And you, know, you can turn it off with your smartphone or your web browser from your desk and, and, um, and you can change it and make it better if you'd like because it's all open source. And um, now, this is not the best sprinkler system in the world. There are better ones out there, but this is mine, and this was done in about six weeks. And the fact that I could do what my grandfather never did, which was go from idea to marketplace in six weeks, and with a better sprinkler system that sort of did, in fact, update the automatic sprinkler system for the 21st century in my own little way, was kind of amazing. And what was even more interesting is, it turns out the main market for this is hydroponic pot growers, who turned out to be, <laughs> they have very intense sprinkling needs. Also an underserved community, I'll have you know. Um, so, so, so there was that. Now, now, this was only a thought experiment that I decided to make real, but in the course of doing so, I, I had to make the enclosure. And uh, this was another thing I knew nothing about. Remember when we made a dog's breakfast of fonts and such with desktop publishing? Well, this is me making a dog's breakfast of CAD. Um, and this is my first cat experience in this enclosure. It turns out, by the way, by, the walls were way too thin. Um, but I downloaded a free program. It was called Autodesk 123D. Um, it's now called, uh, it's now released as Autodesk 123D Design. Um, but this is my very first experience with, uh, with, 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 with cat. And um, it took about, about three minutes. And I just want to kind of point out one thing, which again, this is like the next thing that I got chills. Okay, so I, I told you that desktop publishing was amazing, whether you remember that or not. Here's something else that's amazing. Okay, this is not gonna impress you, but it should. When you go to your word processor menu, and you go to the file menu, and you pick print, and bits on the screen, pixels, turn into atoms of ink through some miraculous process of parsing and vectors and rasterization and God knows what, when you press print and out comes the piece of paper, that's kind of magic. You know, bits turn into atoms right there in front of you and it looks beautiful and sometimes in color. Anyway, it, okay, you're not impressed. With CAD programs, you don't pick file print, you pick file make. And at that point, when you pick make from these, what happens is that like, you know, 500 years of manufacturing skills and expertise and technology gets turned into a software wizard. And it sort of says, well, would you like to print that in 2D or 3D? Would you like to print that here or there? On your desktop or using a cloud service? What material would you like? Here are the cost implications of this, this material versus that material. Oh, you would like to print in titanium. Here's a way to minimize the volume to cut down the cost. Oh, here's some of the various sourcing types. Would you like to bring electro electronics into it? It kind of, this, 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 we've turned, we turned like the, you know, the global supply chain into an algorithm that's on your desktop. And you know, we've, we're coming very close to the day when manufacture is in fact a button in your web browser. So, so check it out. These, these, these are free. You, if you have your phone, you can download it on your phone. One, two, three designs on iOS and your iPad and on your desktops on Macs and PCs. And, and it's free and it's super easy and manufacturing is now a button click. And that is kind of awesome. So what does that mean? That means that in the same way we all became publishers, we are all now designers.
and it's time to get good at it. Um, what does it mean to be good at designer? Well, CAD used to be hard, right? CAD used to be like $5,000 a seat license. You had to go to school to use, get by the way, CAD is computer-aided design. It's like the word processor of 3D images, of 3D objects. Yes, you had to go to school and get training and permission, and only companies would have CAD and architects and such like that. And now, Everybody has CAD. You've got CAD on your phone, whether you're using it or not. Um, if you use Minecraft, the game, that's CAD. Doesn't look like CAD, but it, it is CAD. Our children are growing up, they're fluent in, in polygons because they play video games. They know how to translate from 2D screens into 3D imageries. They, they can navigate virtual space. They're good at this stuff. This is second nature to them. It's just CAD. It's all the same thing. It just was called the scary thing called CAD rather than designing stuff or drawing. So, I'll tell you, I want to finish with a story of my, of, of my children. Um, my, my wife, Anne, is here, and, and, and she, uh, she will hopefully forgive me for, um, once again, uh, using my children as props in my speech. Um, but my, my children, as I say, growing up with a, with a MakerBot. And, and this is sort of what it, what, what it does when you grow up with digital, digital manufacturing technology in your home. Um, we remember, by the way, what happened when this happened in our generation. So remember, remember the home computer? Our parents got us home computers. They bought the family home computer. It probably cost $2,000. I wasn't sure why we had it. It was, you know, maybe the program kind of seemed important to a child's education. It was a shared, uh, you know, device. But those home computers, we figured out what they were for. Now, some of us thought they were, decided they were for video games, but others did, in fact, learn to program or create or do email or something, and that's why we're here today. It, you know, that home computer changed the way our experience with technology and liberated something in us that brought us into this room. And now we have the opportunity to grow up with digital manufacturing, to grow up with the 3D printer in your home for about the same price at about the same, at about the same sort of level of development. So my children grew up with a 3D printer, and um, my girls love The Sims, the Sims 3. Um, Sims 3 is a, is a video game, but it's basically a virtual dollhouse. You build a house, you populate it with people, build in furniture, they love it. But at the end, uh, but they have a limit on how much video game time they're allowed. And um, at the end of, I think they're allowed a two hours a weekend day, and at the end, this Hello Kitty timer goes off, and it's time to stop. And then they complain mightily about, 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 about how they have to play in the real world, and we're like... You have a real dollhouse. Why don't you play in a real dollhouse? And um, my girls um, in particular complained. They say, well, it's not as good as the Sims dollhouse. Um, and it needs this. We, did you see I just did this cool furniture, this kind of you know, 1950s style furniture. Daddy, can you buy that for me, please, for my real dollhouse? And you know, I know the answer. I, I, you know, I, I know the answer is no. But with, with parenting, you have to kind of get to know. Um, and so I said, well, so, so first, first I, so I decided I would at least have an informed no, so I researched dollhouse furniture. Um, you didn't think the speech was going to go in this direction of the systematic failures of the dollhouse furniture industry. But, um, so there's three fundamental problems with dollhouse furniture. Number one, it's really expensive. Like, like, a, like a kitchen set with like three components is like $40. Number two... Um, there's very little choice. You don't get you don't get 50 styles dollhouse furniture. You get like Victorian or nothing. And number three, and this one, this one's really crippling. There is no system. There is no systematic standardization of size. So dollhouse furnitures come in all different sizes. The, it, the dollhouses themselves come in different sizes. The people are not the same scale as the houses, and they're not the same scale as the furniture either because they don't bend properly and they don't sit in the chairs. And and if you get one set, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with the other one because there's no standardization. Rant, rant over. 
So the answer was no, we're not going to buy dollhouse furniture, but we don't have to buy dollhouse furniture because we have a 3D printer. So we're going to go online to Thingiverse and we're going to find cool furniture designs. So this was exactly the chair they wanted, but it's a lot of fun. They were delighted to see these designs. And once we found it, we downloaded it, and, we, and in the software, we did one thing, which is there's a little slider that decides how big it's going to be. And we scaled it just right for our dollhouse and our dollhouse <laughs> figures. And then, we, and then we printed it. <laughs> and then they painted it. And they love it. And that simple act of dragging, of picking up the design from the internet, dragging the slider so it's just the right size, and then painting it turned a consumption process into a creation process. And this is no longer a Happy Meal that they're going to discard. It's no longer some toy that was bought on a shelf. This is something they made. It wasn't hard. They didn't have to use a lot of skills, but they put a little of themselves into it, a little creativity. They customized it for their own interests. And so it doesn't even sit in the dollhouse. It sits on, their, on their, the windowsill because they treasure this. And their relationship with plastic is fundamentally changed because it's their plastic, that they made and they changed to reflect themselves. This is that design I just showed you. That, that, how did that design for that dollhouse furniture get there? And the answer is, 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 is Casey. Uh, Casey is, by day, she is a set designer on Broadway. Um, and um, in the old days, with set designs, they, they'd make models first, with like balsa and cardboard. But now she has a MakerBot, and she has CAD. And you can see, uh, there's her MakerBot in the background. And, and here's the set design. And what she does is she designs these beautiful sets for whatever play she's done. Um, and uh, she then 3D prints them. And when the producer signs off, they then fabricate them in, in, in full size, and off goes the set. But, but then what to do with those designs? She's the web generation. We know what to do with our ideas. We, we give them away. We put them online. We share them. And so she puts them on Thingiverse. And they turn into my children's dollhouse furniture. She's not in the dollhouse furniture business. She's not, she's not in the furniture business at all. She's a set designer. But what she did had utility outside of set design. And as a result, she has liberated a generation of children. To, and her stuff is fantastic. Go, check it out. Go to Thingiverse.com and check out Pretty Small Things. You will not believe her. Her space station playset is unbelievable. <laughs> anyway, that's what happens when you take the web's innovation model and attach it to manufacturing. Is suddenly these great things like sharing and giving away and communities and free, thank you, Stuart, um, kick in, and now if you're a toy company, this should fill you with terror. Because <laughs> my children don't need your stuff anymore, because they've got a MakerBot and they've got the internet. My, my boys, meanwhile, do Warhammer 40K mechs. <laughs> so, this is, this is, this is, I told you that, that you know, this is one tool, it's cheap and easy. I told you about cloud manufacturing, it's cheap and easy. This is the, this is the, the other tool, the software. This is Tinkercad. It's free on the web. Um, this is um, um, uh, one of my sons, uh, Toby. Um, uh, we saw Wally, -E, the, uh, the movie, and he thought that it'd be cool to make a Toby robot. And so this is what he does for fun. You know, this is, this is kind of amazing. So kids now do CAD for fun. And he doesn't know it, but he is that digital designer. And he is getting good at it. And he now knows that anything he can imagine, he can make real. And he knows that it's easy, and he knows that it's free, and he knows that there's no one who's going to judge his designs. And there's no one who's going to say that's not good enough, or you need to be a professional, or you need to go to school to do that, or you need a credential. 
Um, in the same way that no one judged us when we published via blogs or when we tweet or when we use the internet, we could do what we wanted and that liberated the creativity that defined the last two decades. So I want to end just on this one note. This is the last bit of history that should, should have blown your mind at the time, maybe did blow your mind at the time, but probably doesn't blow your mind today. When Apple released the iPad, iPod, rather, the motto was Rip, Mix, Burn. Remember that? Rip, Mix, Burn? What does that mean, Rip? means take a manufactured good, a commercial good, and make it your own. Digitize it, bring it into your computer. Mix, change it, burn, remanufacture it. Create your own CD, your own DVD. Okay, I get it. It's just ripping and ripping music and burning CDs and what are CDs anyway. And, uh, but still, it was kind of unbelievable in its time. Autodesk has a similar slogan, which is kind of unbelievable in its own way. Um, rip, mod, make. What does it mean to rip physical goods? It's called reality capture, 3D scanning. 3D scanning is a process by which you use a um, technology to digitize, to scan an object and turn it into polygons. Um, again, it used to be a very expensive technology. It is in your pocket right now. If you have an iPhone or an iPad, right now, download a software, maybe not right now, but when, you, when, when you're out, download a free software app called 123D Catch from Autodesk. And, um, and what it does is it uses the camera, just like you can see here. You use the camera on your phone or your, your iPad. You just go around an object like that, and you go click, 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 click. It uploads it to the cloud. It stitches it together and creates a polygon like this so that you can print a Pez dispenser of your head. <laughs> but what that means is you can photocopy stuff. So this thing right here in my hand, I, would, I don't like it. I wish it were white, or I wish it were titanium, or I wish it had, you know, blue horns. I just photocopy it, or my logo, more to the point. Um, I just go click, 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 click. I've now ripped it. I then import it into these CAD programs, Tinkercad, whatever, which I can use because they're easy, and I change it. Maybe I'm going to add my logo. And then I upload it to Shapeways and have it printed in titanium because that would be cooler. And I just photocopied reality. That's kind of amazing. And by the way, Dimension is all free. Well, except for the printing and titanium stuff, which is actually super expensive. But, <laughs> but, but the rest of it, you know, the ripping and the mixing part, or the rips, ripping and the modding part, that's all free in your, in your pocket on your phone. This is, this is kind of magic. You know, and this, this one, it, again, try it. And I suggest, by the way, you, you know, daylight works a little bit better and, you know, make sure the contrast is good. But it, it's kind of the fact that it works at all is astounding. There are massive questions that get raised once you can photocopy reality and make it your own. Um, intellectual property is just the beginnings of it. Um, I mentioned, I showed you the Warhammer figures that we did. Um, um, it turns out that, we, here's my other complaint. Okay, after I complained about the, the lack of standardization in dollhouse furniture, here's going to be the lack of standardization in, in base figure ratios in Warhammers. Warhammer kits come with 11 figures and 10 bases. I have no idea why. Um, and so my boys say, can you, Dad, can you buy us a box of bases? And I'm like, a base is a circle. It is a disc. And I'm like, no, we have a, make, we have a 3D printer. We are not going to buy a box of discs. We're going to make them. And so I, I did this. At this point, I'm super good at CAD because I can actually draw a circle and extrude it. And I'm like, done. And um, we printed it. It looked great. And then I, because, you know, my own little sort of Casey way, I, I uploaded a Thingiverse and, and to share it. And then it came time to to label it. They said, okay, it says title. And I'm like, Warhammer 40K base. Description, this is a base for Warhammer 40K figures. Um, and I like posted it. 
And like within five minutes, the first comment comes in, dude, you were in so much trouble. <laughs> the last time somebody did this, Games Workshop, who owned this British company who owns the Warhammer line, filed a DMC takedown. They're coming after you, man, take it down. <laughs> so at the time I was the editor of Wired and I thought, this could make it for a cool story. <laughs> I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna wait and see what happens. Well, nothing happened. They wouldn't, they didn't come after me. And so I was like, I was getting kind of bored. So I went after them and I said, hey, Games Workshop, see what I did? <laughs> I posted this. What are you going to do? I was a little nicer about it than that. But, um, and they said, well, well, um, I said, you know, it's just a circle. Are you really claiming intellectual property or, you know, rights over a circle? And they said, what'd you call it? So I called it a Warhammer. Oh, <laughs> yeah, well, that's a trademark name. The moment you called it a Warhammer 40K base, you're infringing our intellectual property because that's our name. Um, and I'm like, oh. I mean, you're acknowledging you've ripped us off. The moment you titled it the Warhammer 40K figure, and I said, oh, okay. Then I looked at what other people did. And what they all did, everybody else did, and there's tons of Warhammer 40K scan stuff out there, and they all did, it's like, it's like base for board gaming figures, and then the text, it says, this is a base for board, uh, uh, board gaming figures, um, do not use it for Warhammer 40K. <laughs> if you wanna use a Warhammer 40K base, buy it from Games Workshop, they're the best. And you know why they type that, right? So that when you type Warhammer 40K into the search terms, up it comes, right? <laughs> so let's just say that, this, there's, that, that we have not completely figured out what intellectual property is going to mean. By the way, you cannot, you cannot copyright physical stuff. You can copyright words and text and video and music, but you can't copyright physical stuff. We actually don't have laws to decide this. We don't know how many polygons is intellectual property infringement. You know, is a low-poly photocopy of reality okay, but a high-poly not? Um, if, if, what if I give it away? I know what happens if I, if I photocopy Bugs Bunny or photocopy Mickey Mouse and uh, sell it, but what happens if I photocopy Mickey Mouse and give it away? I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure I do know I get sued to death by Disney, but, um, but I don't know on what grounds they're going to do so, and no one else does either. We, the fact that copyright does not apply to physical things is a massive challenge now that we all have the ability to rip, mod, and make. I'm actually going to skip, uh, I, think, I think I'm running past this, so I'm going to skip past the, the, the last part, um, which was my own little story, of, and, and just end up with this. This is, this is a kind of like my slogan. This is my bumper sticker of what's going on. And it is atoms of the new bits. And what I mean by that is that, is that the magic of what we did on the web, and the magic of what we did with personal computers, and the magic of digital now applies to the physical. If you thought the web was big, I think this is going to be bigger. Thank you very much. I'm gonna, thank Let's you. Go sit. I'm gonna get my water. Oh, good idea. I'll share. You're supposed to sit there. I will. Um, you hardly mentioned open source. How's that play in all this? Um, you know, open source is is my particular passion, but I don't think it's actually um, um, required. Um, so I, I mentioned that uh, uh, I mentioned a couple things that were actually open source. Arduino, um, which is the uh, computing platform that we use for Open Sprinkler and for all of our drones, which we may talk about later, um, is an open source hardware project. MakerBot over there is an open source hardware pro project, liberated by something called the RepRap um, project. How's my how's my Darth Vader head going? 
Taking its sweet time. Taking its sweet time. Yeah, this is why this is why this is not a mass production technology, right? Um, we'll get there. The 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 jaw is fully in place. Um, so so um, uh, so open source, open source, as you know, and all of you know very well. I mean, you had the first open source conference, I guess, didn't you? Um, no, but you were there. The hackers uh, conference? Yeah. Hackers conference yeah. is that. Okay. So open source is a very explicit form of sharing, which is to say it comes with a license that requires, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, uh, that, that, that everything that's derivative designs be also shared. And that's a, that's a very kind of hardcore form of, of sharing, which I believe in, and everything we do is open source, but it's not required. That, um, uh, you know, there's other forms of sharing. Creative Commons is a form of sharing that's not explicitly open source. And sometimes just sort of giving away stuff with no license whatsoever is okay. So I think that open source is... is um, uh, open source hardware is uh, is an interesting experiment on the kind of the hardcore side of what I'm doing, mm-hmm. but it's not the maker movement is not and it's open source are not synonymous. So a question from Bob Kopek: What uh, can't you make? What shouldn't you make? Ball bearings, nano stuff. Can you make nano stuff yet? Well, so when I say me, let's just say the tools available to me. They, it, you know, the yeah. phenomenon. Yeah, so, so um, actually, I mean, Neil, Neil's here, and, and, and uh, you know, uh, is, is, uh, Neil's, Neil, Neil just headed off, so I'm going to have to answer for him, because um, he's the expert on this. Um, so here's what we can make right now. We can make um, uh, um, uh, relatively, you know, high-resolution metals, plastics, glasses, um, woods and things, things like that. Um, we can start to make them in multiple colors. Um, so, you know, so it starts to look like, you know, properly painted thing. Um, and we are just beginning to make them out of flexible materials and be able to have wires inside. What we can't yet make is like the semiconductors, the chip um, in, inside it. Um, we can't make, um, uh, you know, uh, multi-material things to have like the metals and the plastics together and the same, you know, pre-made in the same thing. And, um, uh, you know, and we can't make them, we can't, we can't make them in, multiple, in, in, many, in many copies. So this prototyping technology is slow, as you can see. Um, once you move into mass production, you actually have to switch to a whole different sets. And now you're going to go from plastic, 3D printing to injection molding, and maybe from the CNCing to casting, mm-hmm. and maybe from the, you know, the printed wires to circuit boards. And you actually have to switch technologies when you go from micro to mass. But... You know, as that as furniture factory I showed you, um, once the machines get better, then actually digital does start to scale. Um, so here's, that's kind of where we are right now. Here's where we're going to be. Um, so I think we're kind of in the dot matrix period. We're about to get to the laser and then mm-hmm. the color printer, etc. We are going to get multi-material. We're going to get the uh, the electronics. We're going to um, uh, get resolutions indistinguishable from the from the the mainstream uh, from mass production. Um, after that comes biology. Uh, Craig Venter, the biologist who you know very well, is um, working on a desktop DNA printer. And the scenario is 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 this, or RNA printer, if you will. Um, and the scenario is this. I know Ryan's in the audience, and she'll she, she'll be horrified, or probably knows all too much about this. But um, so right now uh, we had flu season, and probably many of us got our flu shots. Did you know that flu shot was a guess? It was a guess based on some calculation of what the you know, swine-human you know, exchange was in China months earlier, and the guess is righter or wronger at any particular time. Um, what if, rather than that, um, rather than the flu shot uh, months in advance that's a guess, possibly wrong, what if you got an email from your doctor, an encrypted email, let's say, that says, um, this is the strain of flu that's actually arriving right now. 
this is the this is the this is the this is the virus um, that's hitting your town next week. Mm-hmm. And um, send this to your RNA printer and uh, print out a little vaccine, a little sort of a little goo which you'll put in your orange juice or whatever and drink. Um, and um, you would have a custom just-in-time vaccine that was absolutely right. Now that would be good for the flu. Um, it sort of raises the question, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> so right now, if you want to, so this, basically this is a, this is basically, it's called DNA, um, a DNA synthesis. Mm-hmm. And DNA synthesis is now about the, this machinery is about the length from here to the podium, but it's getting smaller every mm-hmm. year. And pretty soon it's gonna be the size of that. Yeah. Um, right now we stop people from synthesizing smallpox by the fact that it's only about a, few, a small number of firms that do mm-hmm. a DNA synthesis and they look for that. What if everybody has one? How are we gonna, you know, we, how are we gonna stop that? They, that, you, that? That genie's out of the box. Is, you know, you can't, change, you can't stop me from making something because it's open source technology. Well, are, I like is the FBI is a lot hipper than they used to be. Back in the days, they'd lock up every hacker that they could identify. Now they go to the, uh, you know, basically IGM and biohacker meetings, introduce themselves. Hi, from the, I'm from the FBI, I do weapons of mass destruction. If you see anything weird, do you let me know? Here's my phone number. Sure, that's, that's probably the way. Um, it hasn't stopped the hackers. Well, of course not. Yeah. And well, so awareness so, is coming. Here's a, an element that I'm hearing about: so DIY bio. Jason Bob, yeah. you know, doing this thing in Boston, and Ryan and I were asking, so you know, what's the sort of level of innovation you guys are, are really dealing with? And he said, what we do is trailing edge innovation. Yeah. And what you're describing here has very much that quality. Absolutely, there is trailing there... edge innovation. Now, what is? You know, this sounds like Buckminster Fuller talking about. You know, the rudder is the main event, actually, and it's after the, the ship has gone by, there's a rudder and then there's a trim tab. The last thing to happen is actually what's controlling where the ship goes. Are you saying where the trailing edge technology, the trailing edge innovation is gonna turn the ship? I am a huge fan of trailing edge innovation. So the personal computer was not the most powerful computer, mm-hmm. right, it was probably the least powerful computer, mm-hmm. but it was the only one you could buy. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't, it wasn't, it was sitting behind the glass wall, the glass, you know, room. You didn't need to be an IT guy, you need to be a corporation, you could own it. So the great thing about trailing edge technologies is that they are accessible technologies. And the most, as I say, the most powerful thing about technology is not with the technology, it's who uses them. Our, you know, our, we make, we put more drones in the air every, every quarter than the U.S. military. Our drones are not as good as the U.S. military. We're all ones. disappointed you didn't bring some drones to help uh, you, in the you, you didn't ask. Next time. Um, plus the small in fact, I didn't want to kill anybody. Um, uh, <laughs> it's not, not with weapons. Not, with, not yeah. with weapons, with, with sort of out-of-control robotics. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but, but, you know, our drones are not as good as the U.S. military ones, but, but, but you're not going to get a U.S. military one. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you're going to think of non-military functions, and you're going to think of in the same way that the Internet used to be military, and then we found better use for it once it became ours. Remember, we started, you know, the, the military internet was, was on broadband. Ours was dial-up modems, mm-hmm. but we did magical things with them. And the personal computer was not powerful, but we did magical things with them. And this is a terrible 3D printer. Mm. But my children or other people of their generation will do magical things with it because trailing edge technology is democratized technology. Okay, here's a question since it's coming from Lee Felsenstein. I'm particularly interested in it. Has the first killer app for 3D printing yet appeared? 
So what is it? If not, what do you think it'll show That is off? a great question, Lee. Um, I, I get asked that all the time. I wish I had an answer. So I, um, so I, think, it, I think the way to answer this is, um, is like saying, first of all, it is not unusual for people at this stage of technology not to have an answer for that. I'm sure that Jobs and Wozniak didn't know what the personal computer was ultimately going to be for and until the spreadsheet or the video game or whatever came out. Um, I, I, and there may not be one killer app. In my house, Dollhouse Furniture is, is a killer app <laughs> of, of 3D printing. But let me, let me give you an example. So when the, when the um, color printer, desktop color printer came out, did you, you know, what was it for? The answer was to print your fonts in color, oh. right? And that was not terribly compelling. Uh -huh. And then we invented the digital camera. And now we know what it's for, it's to print our photos. And at, at the time, people, remember at the time when those first printers came out, people thought you were going to print the New York Times? It was, that was going to be, it was going to be distributed manufacturing of, of mass media. And they certainly thought that you wouldn't be creating, we wouldn't all be creators, we wouldn't all be, 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 be writers, we'd be printing out other people's writings. And that turned out not to be true. In fact, we are all, all, all writers, not necessarily printing it out. But, and, that, and, those, and, those, and what we end up using our printers for is stuff that we create. Not because we're painters, mm -hmm. but because we have cameras. And we take our own pictures and print our own pictures rather than downloading and printing other people's. How many here still print photographs? Okay. Well, there's, you know, maybe 20. Um, question well, from Rob Knapp. Precious memories. <laughs> what will be the immunological response of established large-scale manufacturing to the presence of this alien form of making things? Uh, how's this playing in China, for example? Uh, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then, then you've won. Right. Um, uh, so, I mean, we're kind of in the ignore phase, I think. I think the, the maker movement in particular is, and these things are dismissed as toys and, and, and insubstantial. Um, here's my new watch. This mm -hmm. is my, my Pebble smartwatch. Anybody here have a Pebble smartwatch? Okay, pretty cool. Um, does it, have anyone heard of the Pebble smartwatch? Great, okay. So this, this is a Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. Project Kickstarter is like the you know the financing model of the maker movement, mm -hmm. and what I love about this smartwatch, this Pebble smartwatch, it was announced on the same week as the Sony smartwatch. Does anybody here have a Sony smartwatch? Has anyone heard of the Sony smartwatch? Okay, so There's one. one person has heard of the Sony smartwatch. I love that this was designed by four kids in Palo Alto, um, and it blew Sony away. And I just think that's, that, you know, the, you take a few more examples like that, a few more pebbles blowing, a, you know, four kids in Palo Alto blowing, or Kickstarter projects blowing away mass manufacturing companies, and then they're going to start to pay attention. So is this some new level of innovators dilemma that Sony can actually figure out and get in front of? Sony in particular? <laughs> no. And Apple, say, or Google, or something. You know, there's been a, there's been a series of experiments um, with companies releasing design files to allow innovation. So, for example, um, I don't think it was Apple, but I think Nokia released um, a, the design file, the case for Nokia phone. Mm -hmm. um, and they're like, you, you know what? So, we'd like to be cooler. Mm -hmm. You know, we just. We'd like to be cooler. We think the cases are kind of a way for people to express creativity around our products, maybe make them a little bit cooler. You should not have to go through the hassle of using micrometer and measuring the case and doing the CAD yourself. Here's the CAD. It's out there. We've given you all the mechanical dimensions of what's necessary for a case. Now, you know, go at it. But, you know, come up with some cool designs or etch it out, et cetera, and make it and build a business around it, and we're going to make it easy for you. So that's a little tiny thing of releasing the design files. You know, Nokia's, Nokia is not a trade secret for Nokia. It just made it easy for a, a community of, 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 of 
creatives to build businesses around them. And no, uh, sorry, Lego does the same thing. There's a whole ecosystem of, mm. of Lego, of people doing kind of the long tail of Lego, making things that Lego wouldn't make. Uh, there's a company called Brick Arms that makes like, like we get back to weaponry, but they make, they make guns basically mm. for Lego right. because Lego doesn't like making guns. They're a family-oriented company, but kids like guns. And the nice thing about guns is that it keeps those, the tragedy for Lego is that their, their, their customers age out at 12. Mm. And they lose them. But if they only keep them to 16, they buy these $300, star, you know, Death Star <laughs> models. So you need to bridge the gap from 12 to 16. And the way to do that is with guns, mm. you know, <laughs> and, and, Halo, and Halo, you know, illegal Halo figures, um, which Lego will not make. But there's a whole ecosystem of these small kind of makery companies that, that, uh, that, that serve that market. Keep those boys in the Lego world just so that Lego can get them back and they buy the high end. So. Okay, last question. Um, these are seminars about long-term thinking. And boy, does this sound like a kind of a short now talk. Now, you did Ooh, mention, not uh, this all stuff that's happening. God, you're telling us everything is getting faster and then this week and things are trying to catch up you know, this season. What's the long now aspect of this story? Um, I would say the long now aspect is twofold. First of all, it's the reversal of globalization. It's the fact that manufacturing is no longer driven by labor costs and instead by, so speed, the last by flexibility. So that's a future. 500 years? Yeah. So, so let's is, say the last. Okay, so that's flipped. It's yeah. gone permanently, you think? So now manufacturing goes closer to market. You know, it's driven by innovation, driven by speed, not money. Okay. That's kind of a that's kind of an Einsteinian pivot, right? From you know from from the dimensions of money to the dimensions of time. Mm -hmm. um, but that so that 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 means that that could be the future of American manufacturing. It means that you know we now start to make things where the ideas are rather than where the cheap labor is, and that could you know, I don't know whether how many jobs it's going to create, but that's that that's a that's a kind of a a, a, a millennial long shift that's going to play out. The other one I would argue is it's the long tail. It's the long tail stuff. Um, I mean, it's it's the uh, it's the ability. Uh, mass no longer wins the day. At the mm -hmm. end of the day, um, you know the uh, you know the markets of ten thousands. Uh, Kevin Kelly here is is, is you know, brilliantly written about about the power of small markets. And by small, it's like so, so ten thousand. Take ten thousand. This is a tough number, right? Mm -hmm. Ten thousand is too big for an individual and too small for mass production. Mass production doesn't get out of bed for ten thousand. Individuals can't get up there. So what about all those markets of 10,000? On the web, we know those markets of 10,000. They're called, they're called the web, right? Mm -hmm. It's niche, it's, 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 it's you know, discriminating, it's, it's, you know, it's focused you know, sites. We could do that because the, doesn't, because the web doesn't care about scale. Now manufacturing doesn't care about scale, and those markets of 10,000, which is really the Kickstarter, you know, the Kickstarter model or the Etsy model, mm -hmm. um, you know, those markets of 10,000 can now exist. And what we're going to discover is there's a new class of product out there that couldn't exist before because they violated this, the, you know, the, the scale rules that will now exist. And maybe they're just going to be better versions of the old products, or maybe they're going to be something we never thought of. So is this a Moore's Law artifact, and will it slow down when Moore's Law slows down? Well, yes. I mean, it is a Moore's Law artifact. It is absolutely mm -hmm. driven by the march of, 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 of technology. You know, the fact that this is cheap and easy is, mm -hmm. is, is basically Moore's Law. It, it's, you know, and, and, that's, and that's great. Um, when you say when Moore's Law slows down, you're talking about the semiconductor part of Moore's Law. All right. There's there are, also a biotech version, which a, is four to six times faster. Yeah. I mean, you know, in my world, in, in drones, you know, what we're driven, we're, we call, we're, we're driven by the technology inside your smartphone. 
um, mm. which is actually more about like MEM sensors and about the camera and about the GPS and about the software and the mm. wireless and you know so it's much more than just simply the processor itself. And so when you think more broadly about you know about 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 you know technology interacting with the physical world, mm -hmm. um, which is what the sensors, the Internet of Things does, then I think you know we've just begun to touch what Moore's law can do. Welcome to the future. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.